0: Hello everybody and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here and I'm joined by Don as usual. Today we're going to be starting off a very special series of episodes. I'm, I'm very excited to be doing this. The purpose of this series is to take a look at the book Program to Kill by Dave McGowan. It provides a sort of theory for certain things around serial killers and uh, trafficking rings and the strategy of tension that I think are very interesting topics but i feel that it kind of required a little bit more legwork than uh, is available just in the book itself so what we're really doing is like exploding the book a bit taking a look at the the different stories it tells the different events that it recounts and trying to piece it together ourselves uh with the help of some friends who are interested in, in very similar things so along those lines i've brought in a special guest for you guys today this is uh matt from ghost stories for the end of the world hello yeah. Hi, Matt. How you doing? <laughs> I'm
1: good. Yeah. You guys? Very yeah, good. I'm good. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm on. happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So Matt's podcast is... Uh, is It takes a look at these things in a way that I thought... I don't know. It just lined up very similarly with the way that I thought was like a the, the correct way to approach it. So Matt, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, your podcast and kind of things you've covered on there.
1: It's just the project's really exploring like secret histories and stuff. Like I never... Really thought of myself as a conspiracy theorist until people started telling me I was one. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> now I suppose I, I kind of have to earn that, but yeah, it's um, basically a show about um, organized crime and um, political corruption and how that is, you know, shaped by like uh, historical and economic forces. I suppose is that, that sounds a bit grandiose, doesn't it? But um, yeah.
0: <laughs> Sounds about right to me. I mean, yeah, anytime I try to describe the kind of uh, sort of stuff in my particular angle on it, it does end up sounding kind of similarly like, oh man, I wish there was a less like hoity toity way to describe things. But <laughs>
2: sure, it is yeah. what it is. Yeah. Well, whenever we talk about politics on uh, You Can't Win, we always get to this point where, you know, we'll be talking about the, the everyday kind of stuff about, like, I don't know, Biden or some of that. And very quickly it gets into, you know, crime and uh, networks and stuff like that. And like any any sort of story ends up kind of resolving down into something like that anyways. So I don't know, I think it's good to get into maybe this series and stuff with to kind of see what we're saying when we referred to that kind of thing or something like that instead of just uh, mm-hmm. instead of, you know, making it a bit more concrete and also, you know, providing some background. Now, this would be helpful for me because other than the Pizzagate is real series and stuff like that, I don't know a lot about you know what our term conspiracy theories or all this kind of stuff like, um, so I can be a bit more maybe uh, an outsider on that, but we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, so I'm excited. So what's the the first up that we're doing for today?
0: Yeah, so the first thing uh, that we're we're what we're talking about today is uh, the Dutroux affair, which was a scandal that rocked Belgium in the 90s. It centered around this man, Marc Dutroux, who had committed various crimes um, involving trafficking, um, child abuse, kidnapping, and uh, it implicates very high-profile people in Belgian society, and actually just European society generally, um, politicians, uh, leaders of the police, and people in high ranks in NATO even. Very very many people ended up resigning uh, due to this case. And uh, it also led to a massive general strike. So that's the that's the short story. Uh, what we're going to be doing today is telling the long story. Um, so to that end, we're first going to take a look at Belgium and kind of asking the question, why Belgium? Why does this happen in Belgium? And why does that actually matter? Um, so I believe Matt has prepared a little bit of a, a spiel on that for us. So if you want to take it away, Matt.
1: Yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm going to be, serving the vegetables before we can get to the uh you know the deep state tidbits kind of thing Um, (laughs) but yeah so basically what what we need to sort of keep in mind as we go through this story is that belgium is a remarkably weak state um especially by the standards of like a western european nation um so it secedes from the kingdom of the netherlands in 1830 and Immediately, it almost becomes a um, weird um, colonial project of the major powers. And if you're talking about major powers at that time, um, you're talking about, you know, Britain, Austria, France, uh, Prussia, and Russia. And they basically decide what the shape of the the Belgian project will take. It's home to three official languages. So about 65% speak uh, Flemish or Dutch. Uh, 35% speak French. And um, then there's kind of a a little enclave of people near Brussels that speak uh, exclusively German. So as the state develops, the various arms of it have to cater to these different linguistic and um, cultural groups, which means that then uh, political clientelism and uh, machine politics becomes quite a big thing. Patronage networks and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. So, so in Canada, this case is, I mean, Mm. like Belgium as a case is kind of brought up a lot because Hmm. uh, Canada has uh, Quebec and Quebec has a lot of national aspirations of its own a lot of the time or, you know, this debate whether or not like, you know, how Canada itself can maybe forge an identity that goes beyond that binational divide and kind of you know, unites this stuff. So reading and uh, learning about this kind of stuff uh, from your notes and stuff was, I'm like, oh yeah, this this is uh, familiar to me to some extent. So maybe maybe like in a smaller sense than uh, Belgium, but still like uh, I've seen it over the years, kind of this debate about binational uh, unity and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, anyways, continue. Sorry.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that accords with um what I've seen just from growing up in Britain, where you have this, mm-hmm. this united kingdom that is full of people or regions that, fucking hate each other really um you know <laughs> yeah. the only thing that unifies us all is that we all just have to pay tax to the same government but um you have like yes, yeah, very similar sort of divides um that that spring up and the fact that that can in and of itself become a very useful political tool um you know so like again not to get too into the weeds on britain but like keeping wales in a um, in some respects in a state of underdevelopment um sure you know that kind of thing um carving off northern ireland from the rest of ireland um it's it all becomes its own sort of power play really um and then of course britain sort of sees the utility of having a a a belgian state in the end because they realize that it'll serve as a very useful kind of um buffer between France and the rest of Europe because another thing we have to remember is that the Napoleonic wars are very um still very fresh in the minds of a lot of the the heads of states of the major powers at this time um and this sets a template for the next 150 years and um right up to the present which is Belgium effectively becomes the battleground of Europe anytime there's some kind of uh, conflict that needs working out somehow Belgium ends up becoming uh, one of the theatres of, of those conflicts. And in Britain's thinking of creating it as a, a buffer state, we can see a kind of, uh, what would be the term? An anticipation of what would lead to the creation of uh, what we call the stay-behinds uh, nowadays after World War II. Um, and the other thing is that Belgium had very little say over any of this um so all that really mattered was how its existence affected uh the major players in european politics at the time sure
2: yeah so just to clarify by stay behind you mean the gladio networks yeah that, yeah yeah apologies um, yeah. that uh so so uh sort of like militia units sort of thing that uh, were secretive often and uh were supposed to sort of theoretically fight uh communists if they invaded or something like that and then uh were often either used or uh, freelanced to uh, play a role in dirty politics in yeah like, during I, the Cold War and stuff.
1: I think it helps to think of um, if you look at Italy and Belgium and how they were used, um, you know, during the nineteenth uh, century as as like buffer states in major power um, geopolitics well, that wouldn't do after World War II. You couldn't kind of uh, condescend to them in the same way. So what you had mm-hmm. to do is effectively, and this sounds very glib, and it is allied in a lot of sort of nuance, you had to create secret states within these public-facing states to serve as buffers against you know, the USSR. But, I mean, it will make more sense as uh, we sort of roll along. But that, sure. it's the same thinking. It's just because of the historical context has changed the way that they implement the same old policy of using different states you know to uh, act as buffers against regional enemies that evolves with the times basically Mm
0: -hmm. yeah let let me just jump in here to uh, tie it back to some things that we've talked about previously on the podcast Um, so like if you know I don't know if you you guys have listened to our uh, Pizzagate is Real episodes Mm -hmm. about Epstein and stuff we talked about the way that the u.s government and military used uh the mafia in italy to uh for for certain purposes in world war ii um kind of as like an anti-communist and anti-fascist force something that they felt was like pretty squarely on their side but also wasn't going to be too much of a problem later on uh so that was basically the genesis of this idea of the stay behind networks and it sort of was expanded uh almost every country in europe has some kind of presence like this and they're not all organized crime syndicates some of them are these sort of uh anti-democratic anti-communist uh, groups of various kinds um but yeah we'll, we'll get into that a bit later i think when it becomes a bit more relevant sure well, it's it's
1: interesting you mentioned Italy because Belgium and Italy very often get compared to each other because they're both relative mm-hmm. um, newcomers, you know, in terms of being powers in Europe. So, yeah, they, they both have quite a few uh, things in common. So they have this issue of uh, the regions that uh, don't really believe in the project of the state kind of thing. And the state itself struggles to sort of uh, impose itself you know, on, on these different regions and it struggles to establish any kind of real authority or legitimacy in the eyes of a lot of the people who uh, live in the more neglected parts of these countries. Um, now, Italy doesn't quite have the same um, divides as Belgium, although, uh, you know, like the Sicilian dialect and the Southern dialects and whatnot have created barriers between them and the north, as has like the uh, you could argue like the deliberate underdevelopment of parts of southern Italy um, as compared to the north. In Belgium, um, the statistics are uh, quite interesting, and I I often wonder how you even run a country um, that has this much kind of um, what would be the term this this much that
0: has cultural fragmentation or something yeah
1: yeah 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 cultural linguistics. so uh, i think i clipped this from a, a political article but it basically says belgium has the trappings of western political structures but in practice these structures are flawed and have long been so uh chris Deschauer um says that the development of political corruption and clientelism um is kind of a a, a natural outgrowth of a um, a state that can't establish its own legitimacy. Um, so this leads to a kind of I hesitate to say Kafka-esque, but it is kind of absurd where they effectively have a bunch of devolved um, administrations that govern different parts of the country the way they see fit. And there's very overlap uh, very little overlap or joined up thinking in how the country as a whole is run. And this extends right down to like, uh, so the police, um, they have different small local regional police forces that all speak the language of the regions they police and they don't really interact or work with one another all that much. Uh, then on top of that, you've got um, the uh, gendarmerie, which was kind of like the Carabinieri in Italy. It's like a militarized police. Um, the regional police forces all hate the gendarmerie. The gendarmerie hates them and kind of condescends to them. It's in turn, intimately connected to the two main uh, Belgian state security services, which are, uh, hang on, the VSSE, which was formed a few days after the, the Belgian state and um, the Belgian military intelligence as well. And in turn, after World War II, these groups all become uh, intimately connected to uh, the the stay behind networks and the the freelance sort of paramilitary uh, neo fascist underground as well in Belgium. So it's a it's a basket case uh, basically, um, and this leads to what you could call a kind of um, calcification of the political process, um, and it's it's. it's becomes a very kind of slow dull-witted state that is very slow to uh respond to emergencies or you know crises but yeah then on top of that uh, if we just loop back briefly to the the early years the British suggested that Belgium uh, adopt a constitutional monarchy we basically imposed that idea on them and the role of the monarchy uh as it is in Britain it's supposed to be kind of um, strictly curtailed and it's not Supposed to have any any real um, earth shaking influence over the uh, the political system, but obviously in practice, as in Britain, um, that's that it, it doesn't quite play out like that. So yeah, so you, you have a situation where the the royal family basically uh, in Belgium uh, plays a major role in the uh, the national bank that they had. It's uh, the uh, General Company of Belgium, which means that it has a kind of extra political influence and that's much the same in britain as well with our royal family Um, by virtue of the fact that they are one of the largest landowners in the country and they have their money tied up in loads of different investment portfolios and whatnot and then on top of that you have to remember that this kind of extra political influence extends to people in the orbit of the monarchy, so people they do business with, people they play tennis with, if you're under their umbrella, some of their kind of legal protections and and the protections that they enjoy from uh, public scrutiny and accountability, that sort of rubs off on you as well. And in fact, as we'll see in this story, a large part of the Dutroux investigation was hampered by the fact that so many people involved had connections, direct or indirect, to elements in the aristocracy and even the royal family so this is probably best exemplified in belgium when uh king leopold ii uh decides that uh the way to unify belgium and he's he's in good company with a lot of other uh european heads of state at this time the way to uh, unify belgium is to steal a country from Africa. That's basically how all these European states functioned uh, in the 19th century. Anytime they faced like a crisis of legitimacy, we launch a mad dash for Africa and we steal a country or some resources from there. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But in his case, and this kind of explains the amount of autonomy he has, and this will uh, help explain other things we're going to get to later. Um, he basically sets up a non-governmental organization uh, called the um, International Africa Association, which establishes the Congo Free State as a, uh, a corporate fiefdom that he owns. Um, and what follows after that is basically a Holocaust. Uh, I've seen estimates of the number of dead. Uh, the lowest is about 10 million. I've seen it go as high as 20 million. And this is done despite the fact that the, the Belgian political establishment is not really that interested at the time in this uh, this adventurism, but they find themselves dragged along with it anyway. Um, and it, it all speaks to this uneasy relationship between the monarchy and the aristocracy and what's supposed to be the, uh, the democratically accountable uh, state of Belgium so yeah uh and this so this the role of the monarchy uh this has been like an ongoing point of contention uh in belgium and it's debated constantly like how much power should they have versus how much power um do they have in practice anyway um Mm -hmm. and then we have um A senator called Yves de Wastige, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, it's a former member of the Belgian Constitutional Court. uh, And they cited uh, four points of democracy, which the Belgian Constitution lacked. And they were that the king chooses the ministers. The king is able to influence the ministers when he speaks with them about bills, projects and nominations. The king promulgates bills and the king must agree to any change of the constitution. So already for a constitutional monarchy, that is quite a lot of power if your monarch decides that he doesn't just want to be a ceremonial head of state, you know, like it's yeah. it's all kind of done on a, a gentleman's agreement that Queen Elizabeth will not actually actively intervene in British politics. But in theory she can if she wants to. Um so yeah the, so then on top of that there's the fact that the king and the by extension the aristocracy itself as the embodiment of the state they cannot be charged with any crimes because to do that would be to undermine the legitimacy of the state itself um a, you know a state which is already struggling to establish legitimacy uh amongst the population which kind of brings us full circle and i hope sort of illustrates what um what a mindfuck belgium is in a lot of ways especially at this time yeah um so on top of that we also have to remember that every single layer of Belgium's public-facing institutions, the judicial service, the police, the intelligence services, and so on and so forth, they're all subject to the same uh, patronage network um, that, you know, politicians themselves are. So that also means that if there's a major investigation that's been undertaken, political sensibilities are right up there possibly more important than solving the crime is not offending uh, political sensibilities, which means then that if you find yourself in a situation where a guy has uh, been charged with, you know, kidnapping and murdering children, and now he's talking about how he's been doing it for the Belgian aristocracy and the, you know, members of the Belgian royal family, that creates a situation where you have every incentive in the world not to pursue what he's saying and not to look into it too much because it could cost you, you know, your next promotion. It could cost you a sweet transfer that you've been chasing uh, to a better part of the country. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and that's kind of a, uh, the tangled spaghetti mess of Belgian politics. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and then we get to the stage where basically in 1908, um, because of some kind of canny, uh, Diplomatic skullduggery by the British state. Um, King Leopold's um, excesses uh, are exposed in the media. And uh, even though everybody in Europe at this point is a racist, basically, it's it's way, way in excess of um, what you really need to do to get the job done, you know, to extract the rubber and the other minerals and resources from Congo. It horrifies a lot of the more um, polite, elements of society. So Belgium, I, I wouldn't say against its will, but definitely somewhat reluctantly annexes the Congo free state and turns it into the Belgian Congo, um, which then it, I always think about Leopold's sort of drive into Africa as being the equivalent of the guy who shows up late at a party and everybody else is drunk. And, you know, and Mm -hmm. in this analogy, uh, Leopold would be the guy who, you know, he banged like 2K of cocaine, you know, to catch up with everybody else. Um, (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, so Belgium kind of taught us along and it's still haunted by these feelings of like inadequacy, that it's not a real country, that it's only transient and that it's liable to fall apart at any moment because of all these different. Um, cultural and linguistic and political tensions that are going on. And then World War One kind of comes along and um again it's like a an apocalyptic reaffirmation of the fact that Belgium is just the battleground of Europe. Um and we won't get too much into uh all of World War One, but you know, you have incidents like the rape of Belgium. Um and in the aftermath the entire nation finds itself again kind of questioning what the purpose of the Belgian project is. Um, So it totters along again in the interwar period. And then finally, uh, we get to World War II. And this is when things start to get a little bit weird because the the king of Belgium at that time um, basically surrenders uh, the country um, without a fight. And there were... Huge numbers of people in his uh, administration, uh, his uh, politicians, people, civilians in the country as well, who were, if not exactly, you know, thirsting for a a war, they were more than ready to step up and fight if, you know, the occasion called for it. And he just surrenders the country straight up after trying to Mm -hmm. uh, pursue a policy of um, neutrality. So this then creates a situation where you have this additional split in belgium society between um this kind of ferocious heroic uh, anti-nazi resistance that's largely composed of you know workers um and you know people who'd gone to play roles in like communist organizing and stuff like that and then the kind of business class and the industrialists and the members of the aristocracy who if they didn't flee to britain actively collaborate with the nazis um and then yeah, we, we then kind of bring, bring this kind of brings us up to uh, the dying days of World War II. And um, at this point, Britain and America, like the Western allies, are already eyeing up a coming conflict with the USSR. And I mean, you can read accounts of the time where it seems pretty obvious that a lot of um, economic and political elites in, in the, uh, the allied powers in Britain and America, they always viewed World War II as a kind of unwelcome interruption to what they saw as the real conflict, which was with uh, communist Russia. So now they're, they're looking at the uh, the new sort of makeup of Europe and the world itself um, as World War II winds down. And while Germany is still kind of a heap of smoldering rubble, the British propose uh, an idea, which is something that they got from their experiences uh, dealing with uh, insurgencies in Ireland and India. And what they noticed is, there would be these cells of uh, guerrilla fighters and they would work and live and you know laugh and love in the uh, local communities. And when British troops rolled in to that area, Um, They would wait for everything to sort of settle down and then they would switch on and activate and launch um, attacks from behind the lines, so to speak. And this is something that the British noticed, not just the the Irish, but the Indians doing as well um, during various uprisings. And they kind of paid it back, you know, with like Hellfire and Broomstone. But at the same time, they were sort of um, intrigued by this notion of armies that were invisible to the enemy, that stayed behind the lines and waited for um, an opportune moment to activate and start fighting against the uh, the occupying forces. So they took this to the CIA and it's quite a funny, like the secret history of Britain and the uh, MI6 and the CIA is MI6 suggesting horrifying ideas to the CIA, the CIA running off and implementing it And then Britain kind of tiptoeing out of the room while the CIA gets all the the flack, you know, for whatever it is that they've uh, implemented. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And this also happens at a time when the Nazis have developed a a plan of their own called Operation uh, Werewolf, which is the idea that between 100 and 150,000 of the most fanatical and dedicated Nazis will take off their uniforms, put on civilian clothes, and wait for the Allied forces to roll across um, Germany and Italy and all the other captured territories of the Third Reich. And then again, once the time is right, they'll activate and start a a new phase of uh, the campaign against the Allies. Um, But the problem with this is that uh, Otto Skorzeny, who is tasked with You know, overseeing this uh, operation, he realizes really quickly that Germany's fucked. Like, it's completely out of the game at this point. The German army Mm -hmm. is, you know, destroyed. So, what he does is he repurposes the few um, operatives that he could get to go along with Werewolf, and he turns them into facilitators of the, you know, the the famous rat lines that help Nazis escape um, Germany. But. People like him and Gallen uh, and other high-ranking Nazi operatives, they surrender and they offer themselves to the Allied uh, intelligence services with um, a bargain, basically, which is we have all this training um, as you know, you know, pretty skilled and pretty effective intelligence operatives. Um, We could be useful to you in the fight against anti-communism because, you know, let's face it, that's where the real war is now. So that then leads to um, Britain and America basically cutting secret deals with these Nazis um, to create what would become the nucleus of the European stay-behind networks. So uh, Reinhard Gellin in uh, West Germany, uh, his intelligence agency, for all intents and purposes, is the the berlin field office of the cia uh for to put it in crude terms but it's also a key node in the developing gladio network um and gladio itself comes from the italian branch of the the Stair behind and i think just because it it sounds kind of cool that's why everybody calls the entire Stair behind network gladio now um <laughs> I think so. yeah.
0: yeah um and then in but Bel- it was essentially, like, moving away from the using, like, organized criminals like the, the mafia and, and kind of creating a little bit more controllable uh, agents, you know, that would kind of serve a similar purpose. Yeah, you know, well,
1: like- what's quite interesting about these networks is many of them were, like, very, you know, well-trained, highly skilled sort of, uh, I, I guess you guys would call it black ops um, sort of people, sure. you know. They were well-trained in, like, you know, infiltration, intelligence gathering, that kind of thing. But a lot of them were selected for their um, ferociousness because that would give them an in with the the underworld syndicates of uh, Europe. So, you know, Cosa Nostra, Camorra, Andrangheta, and then, um, like, the Corsican mafia and, and outfits like that as well, um, to the point where the... These organized crime groups and and the, the Gladio, uh cells they didn't merge exactly, but they they did a lot of very profitable business with each other, which we'll, I mean we'll get into that in a, a little while. but Belgium is seen as an ideal kind of uh, location to set up uh, a, a stay behind network. and I think Belgium's was called sDRA. Eight, but that's me what that stands for because it's a lot of um French words I think um right yeah <laughs> and Belgium is kind of perfect because of its geographical location and it's interesting to think that it's the it's the, the same thinking but in reverse this time um so instead of it acting as a uh, a buffer against France now it's acting as a buffer against Russia um you know just just under a hundred years later and They also decide that it would make a perfect location for NATO as well. But the thing to keep in mind, to bring it back to the the true network and just political corruption more broadly, we've already kind of laid out why Belgium was like a a clusterfuck of um, factional political warfare. So now imposing this, for lack of a better term, occult structure that that is the stay-behind network on this country it can only really lead to what it led to because it's already a a country that's long it, it it's rendered so vulnerable by all this political infighting and all these divisions and whatnot that it basically becomes a um an easily manipulated plaything of the West. And sure enough, like the CIA, MI6, they start, you know, sending their guys into the country to hook up with these Gladio networks and coordinate operations with NATO. And basically Belgium becomes uh possibly one of the most haunted countries uh in the history of human civilization after World War Two because it's <laughs> it's yeah. just uh it's just a ghost house that spooks absolutely everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Basically, to summarize, so we have Belgium, like Italy, very weak state, always struggled to uh, establish its own legitimacy, totters along for a uh, hundred years or so. One, like, so they, they go into the colonial adventurism in Congo, which leads to just, yeah, untold horrors and murder. Then, after World War Two, all of this long embedded corruption domestically and confused sense of its own national identity i suppose it makes it a perfect place to run and launch an operation like gladia or the stay behind network as i'll call it and i mean this is part of i'm kind of singling belgium out just because we're talking about it but this is actually part of a kind of a pan-european project at this point because i don't think it's it's very controversial to say in 2022 the the third reich wasn't really defeated so much as the most excessive elements of it were kind of pruned back and then the allies saw what was left and they thought yeah, you know yeah we can work with this like this is all right which is how you end up with someone like gallon being installed as west germany's head of intelligence um and this kind of goes for my own country as well, britain like we're very far from innocent in any of this gladio was effectively our idea. I mean, the CIA gets a lot of flack for it, but it was initially a, British, a suggestion of British intelligence that they form these
0: things. Sure. Even, like, to, to make a distinction between nations at this level almost is sort of irrelevant. Like, I don't think these people really... Their, their main interests aren't, like, national in scope. You know, they're sort of looking out for their own family interests or their business yeah. interests, depending on, you know, what role they play. Uh, that's what they care about. They don't really care about, like, having their country's flag waving, you know?
2: Sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that kind of ties into, I think it was Peter Dale Scott who uh, described this as the, uh, the transnational deep state, which is this mm-hmm. collection of... Uh, elite interests that kind of transcends the traditional nation state which is how you end up with a situation where Alan Dulles is doing business with the Nazi regime all through the 1930s through like you know Sullivan and Cromwell then he's fighting them uh, allegedly during World War II then he's cutting deals with them again in the dying days of World War II to help as many of them as he can escape because it'll be better for not just his bottom line, but the the entire class that he represents. It'll be better for their bottom line if, for sure, yeah, certain Nazis uh, managed to make it out of the slaughterhouse. Um, and then in in Britain we have Le Circle, which began as a kind of joint French German Catholic right wing thing that was, for all intents and purposes, another sort of arm of Gladio. And we took it over in the 60s and transformed it into a kind of Anglo-American enterprise, where it gave the Americans a sort of route in to the the underground anti-communist networks in business and, and politics in Europe, in addition to the access that it had through NATO. And this is kind of where we find ourselves... As the 1950s begin, Belgium goes through this uh, economic boom time almost, uh, as a lot of countries did after World War II. And these stay-behind networks, not just in Belgium, but elsewhere as well. You see the same pattern repeated in Turkey with a counter-guerrilla. You see it repeated in Italy as well. They realize that the chances of an actual ground invasion by the USSR are diminishing by the day almost. It's very unlikely that there's gonna be some kind of ground war in Western Europe. So what are they actually for? And they start thinking about this, and they think, well, we have all this training. We have access to all these buried caches of weapons all over the place. We have all these contacts uh, to the uh, European security services and you know the ruling classes of Europe as well. We have the political protection. Why don't we get paid? You know, so that's when they start kind of running domestic operations that are designed to kind of beat back the threat of the left, because uh, we should probably emphasize just how powerful the the European communist movement, as opposed to Euro communism, was uh, in the 40s and 50s, like in Italy and Belgium. They effectively built par- entirely parallel structures to the uh, normal state and, mm-hmm. you know, ran like social services and and things like that
0: through them um, yeah they essentially formed as a as a result of the the Nazis and the yeah. you know the just the fascists in general that was the uh, that was the base of resistance and so they formed like you said like this almost like a shadow government underneath the occupation of the fascists
1: yeah and they they had a huge amount of' um, it's, it's difficult to imagine a world where um, this was true, but at the time after World War Two, they had a huge amount of um, popular support because they played such a yeah a heroic role in in defeating the Nazis and uh, Mussolini's fascists. It was kind of like Chaz. If it worked, you know, like that's <laughs> mm-hmm. if it, yeah. if that helps sort of <laughs> illustrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sure, Chaz. Minus the Instagram influencers and plus effectiveness, I suppose. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, <I> just...
0: <laughs> um, like like especially in Italy, we keep coming back to Italy, but Italy in particular had a, an enormous communist movement.
1: Yeah, when I was last there, um, I went to Venice, and they still have like quite a few, almost like communist social clubs where you can go in and buy a beer and just hang out, kind of thing. Um, obviously, <laughs> it's a shadow of what it used to be, but it's just it's quite. Um, I don't know. It's quite poignant, you know, that these things still dot the landscape of uh, what, you know, what could have been, I suppose. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, the stay-behinds decide to dedicate themselves first to kind of repelling and suppressing the left domestically, uh, you know, wherever they may be operating. So that entails going after a lot of... Uh, trade unionists, socialist organizers, that kind of thing. And uh, Tom, this kind of gets to what you were talking about with the mafia because very often Cosa Nostra in Sicily uh, especially was an incredibly effective trade unionist slaughter machine, basically. To the point where uh, some sometimes when you read accounts of their history, you wonder if they even were like an organized crime group or if their sole job was just to murder trade unionists because that's all they seem to do right for a lot of the time through the 50s
0: they were paid very handsomely for it by the military and they were allowed to operate with military equipment uh Mm -hmm. i think they were even trained by um the military and when i say the military i mean the u.s military yeah um yeah yeah they 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 understood the assignment as people say on twitter yeah (laughs) <laughs>
1: definitely. Yeah. Um and then um this gets into the so while they're dealing with that and kind of suppressing the left, they're also using their training and their skills to start linking up with the radical fascist underground and organized crime itself uh to make money and get paid. And this coincides with this this economic boom that I've already mentioned, which means that they kind of these cells kind of ride a flood tide of profit um by, you know, um, running lucrative smuggling routes, uh, car theft rings, even pulling the odd bank job, that kind of thing, because the the money's just coming cheap at this point. Uh, it's, it's just the good times, you know, they, they've hit the good times at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, Belgium's, um, Belgium and, and Gladio in Italy, uh 8 and Gladio in Italy, they kind of start to pivot to this idea that if they're not going to be fighting a ground war against the Soviet Union, and if they're already sort of engaged in an ongoing suppression of the left, what they could also do is offer their services in the strategy of tension, which is something that gets talked about a lot. Um, And that's essentially where... They carry out campaigns of um, assassinations, uh, kidnappings, bombings. In some cases, um, that are all designed to kind of undermine the democratically elected state and encourage the population of whatever country they are operating in to push for a kind of right-wing authoritarian takeover of that country. And of course, this—if this, this happens—this will benefit, you know, these. Um, industrialists and businessmen and aristocrats that we've already we've we've already talked about um so some examples of what the belgian stay behind is supposed to have got up to um 1950 they assassinate uh, Julien Lahaut who is the chairman of the communist party of belgium september 10th 1973 the police discover a note from the belgian intelligence agency that describes the the planning of a coup d'etat uh, by, and this is a quote, financial networks and far-right organizations. Uh, they name, among others, Emile um, Leserf, who is the boss of the Nouvelle, the New Europe magazine, and the political protector of a guy called Francis Deson, who is the leader of the Front de, de la Unice, which is connected to another group we'll get into a bit called westland new post there's also the brabant killers which you know we know about the assassination of andrea cools and then there's a bunch of like false flag bombings that they disguise as being perpetrated by left-wing uh agitators
0: mm-hmm. yeah so these two groups are are extremely far right like as you know uh, essentially like on the level of like a neo-nazi kind of a group um and they're going to come up later, so like just all of these uh, these players that are involved in these kinds of networks uh, will show up later as we actually get into the Dutroux affair um, as as being connected to well to do true.
1: Yeah, and I think also I I don't know if I've uh, explained this uh, well enough yet, but what we also have to remember is that as the Cold War progresses in Belgium uh two states effectively develop in one country so you have this Mm. incredibly dysfunctional uh public facing government and it's racked by uh infighting and you know administrative inertia it can't get fucking anything done at all um and then you have for lack of a better term what you might call a deep state um i'm kind of i'm souring on those terms now like deep state and parapolitics and stuff but we don't have better terms so whatever um but we have this deep state that is is—it's composed of multiple conspiring factions that they serve various agendas that are completely at odds with the supposedly democratic system that they dwell in within. And it also happens in Italy as well. Um, P2 Masonic Lodge is probably like the most notorious form um, that it took in Italy. But that was just one state within a state in Italy amongst about half a dozen, you know. I mean, don't forget you still have, like, three main mafia groups plus kind of orbiting satellite organized crime groups and other Masonic lodges as well. So, yeah, basically the whole thing is a shit show. And that kind of brings us, Tom, to, I suppose, like, the central part of this episode, which is because you're... exit If you are a deep what we might call a deep political actor in this environment. And you are confronted with a a kind of precarious balance of like competing interests, you know, like um, some form of solidarity and trust building has to develop amongst the members of this um, shadow state in order to ensure that it continues to dominate um, the public state.
0: Sure. Just like the, the mafia would have you initiated in different ways, committing Mm -hmm. some kind of crime so that they have some leverage over you. If you're operating an extra legal kind of thing like these groups are, um, you need to be able to ensure your agreements and your contracts with one another. You can't resort to, you know, you can't report someone to the Better Business Bureau or something for uh, failing to deliver on, you know, child sex slaves or drugs or whatever it is, you know. So you have to Mm -hmm. ensure these things in other ways. Yeah, so I mean,
1: you have um, you have basic business, you know, like whether whether it's legal or legal or illegal. Um, you you tip somebody off to like a, a you know an upcoming stock tip or an upcoming business deal. Um, Asco in Belgium is a it's a Belgian weapons manufacturer and it has ties to a lot of figures in the country's uh, right wing business class and fascist underground at this time. And that's that becomes a kind of one of many nexus points for this, this meeting of figures that kind of operate behind the facade of the, uh, the public facing institutions in Belgium. Uh, and then, you know, you also have a little bit of insider trading here. You get a few kickbacks there. You have things like the Lockheed bribery scandal, but then blackmail is also another very, very powerful tool that if you, if you choose to use it, it will normally get you the results you want. And as the decades roll on, as the Cold War progresses, there's various like spook outfits, organized crime groups, and uh, what Americans would call machine bosses of old, you know, political bosses who kind of control huge numbers of votes and things like that. They all build these very detailed dossiers on various elites and members of the ruling class in Belgium to compel them to do what they want. In tandem to this, you also have this kind of aristocratic wing of the ruling class in Belgium, as in Britain and elsewhere, and they're already kind of effectively beyond the law and they can't be arrested because they embody the state, as we said. So what do you leverage against them because they're not too concerned about ever being arrested or anything like that? Well, Mm -hmm. you have a kind of a class of people that only really fear disgrace or um, exile from their, their social or class or cultural groups. Um, and then you kind of have the constellations of businessmen and again, deep political operatives around that. So it shouldn't really come as a surprise that, um, sex is a very powerful coercive tool in an environment like this. And the more transgressive and taboo the sex is, the more leverage it offers you as a as an enterprising blackmailer who's trying to get a a result here, um, and on top of that, it also serves as a kind of a ritualized form of bonding between these members of this upper strata of society. So, if everybody is implicated in something, then nobody can ever really be guilty because we've all we've all done the same thing, you know, and we we have to loop back again and start thinking about the long-form history of ruling classes and you know how they actually operate this kind of taboo-busting transgression is a very common practice amongst them it's it's almost like a custom that's handed down from one generation to another and it it fosters this sense of entitlement amongst them that they have to kind of you know exploit and defile people in a society like Belgium, this level of like corruption and depravity, it's enabled by a just a hopelessly calcified political system that cannot adequately deal with this kind of, this level of corruption. Um, which then sort of brings us on to what precedent we might have for this. Like a precedent we might have for this is the, uh, the ballet rosé affair in 1950s France. And that's where, these, these were the pink ballets where it was basically a sex abuse scandal that included a number of uh, members of the French business and aristocratic elite who were caught trafficking girls as young as 14 and 15 to these countryside uh, chateaus where they would make them perform these weird ballet ceremonies and then the night would end with an orgy. And this was exposed and it was confirmed. 23 people ended up being charged in relation to this, including a guy called André Le Troquier. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, he was charged with offenses against morality. So we know that this practice goes on. So the question then is, what function would it serve in War Belgium in the middle of the 20th century?
0: Right. And that's, uh, that's really what this whole series is kind of trying to explore. Like, To what extent can we say that these things exist? And based on that, like what what purpose do they serve? I think a lot of things you've brought up make a lot of sense. We'll have to kind of see as we go forward. Uh, I don't want to like presuppose the answers to those questions, but you you have raised a lot of the kind of, I I think like the reasonable points, like the need for solidarity uh, by people who are kind of above the law in, in other kinds of ways. You know what? What would keep them together? How do you keep people in line? How do you ensure that things that there's an order to things? Yeah, there's also I think uh, a sort of interesting dimension to this, which uh, you touched on as well, the idea of. This being something that's passed on generation to generation by people who are, you know, like they sort of have a different kind of existence than we do. Not all these decisions are under our control about how mm-hmm. society moves and what what happens in the world and that kind of stuff. These people, it's the it's the opposite. You know, they make decisions. Uh, things happen in the world. They, they can affect real change in the world. They can start wars. They can... Uh, you know, create new countries, even like they yeah. go to Africa and plant a flag and all of a sudden there's a new country that belongs to them. Um, mm-hmm. But the mass of people need to be kind of corralled. It's almost, I. I the, the more I, I spend looking into this stuff, the more I kind of, I'm, I tried to see it from their perspective a little bit. And it's yeah. like, we're livestock, you know, we, we are not on the same level as them in, in their eyes, you know, like we don't, even if we're, they understand that we're humans and we have like we're biologically similar or we have kind of a maybe they understand that we have like an interior life that's similar to their own it doesn't quite click it's like that uh that npc meme you know where everyone's an npc I, i kind of feel like they look at us like this
1: that that kind of puts me in mind of um of two things which is glenn Maxwell, uh the jeffrey epstein's fixer pimp, whatever, she was known to refer repeatedly to um, the girls that were involved in the trafficking ring as trash, as garbage, um, Mm. completely had no sense of them as human beings. They were only organisms that were to be exploited, you know, for what they could get out of them. And then slightly more um, comedic and and silly. But um, if you look at Prince Andrew's interview on the BBC, have you guys seen that? Um, I have yeah with the, he
0: yeah that's bizarre it's
1: bizarre <laughs> yeah, but so it. yeah it, it's the complete lack of effort that he has put in to actually creating a believable story or a believable yeah. set of denials and it's shot through with an almost acidic contempt for not just his interviewer but for us as people watching he doesn't need to put the effort in to coming up with convincing lies because of who he is. You know, it's enough that he's he's graced us with his presence for an hour on national television. That's all. Um, and it is it speaks to that idea of these people almost being alien in in the way that they uh operate in the world and the moral framework that they operate under as well
0: yes they ha- I, that's that's the thing i keep coming back to with this i i've sort of have been thinking about this as being like a super culture mm-hmm. like we, we we speak about subcultures as you know there's the broad kind of popular culture the, the the mass culture of that defines a you know a broad society and then little subcultural groups you know um yeah. maybe a, some kind of ethnic like minority or uh you know whatever you can think of like musical subcultures I, with with these people, I think of it as a superculture because it's uh, it's a minority culture, but it's uh somehow also more it has a stronger like determining fact over the way that everything operates in society. You yeah, know, so it doesn't operate within the rules and within the norms and terms that are set by the the broader culture. it actually sets those terms itself in certain ways yeah uh, but it, i mean it has its own unique operations as well
1: i mean because th- that kind of ties into something i think I, I mentioned to you which is one of the the key ways that skeptics have approached things like the Detru affair is to say that the the ex-witnesses descriptions of what took place at these parties in these uh country villas are so cartoonishly violent and over the top that they can only be the product of fantasy. They can only be the product of a, a delusion, you know. Mm-hmm. But then consider how the Belgian state actually conducted itself in the Congo, you know, like in in the colonies when nobody was looking. And you'll find that it's very much similar. Uh, it's absolutely depraved, insane levels of ultra violence. So if we know that they get up to that, in their, you know, colonial holdings and whatnot, then what happens when the colonies go and all they're left with is, you know, their own country to operate in. And yeah. I think that if if you know what, if, if you know what they're capable of already, like overseas, then why is it so hard to get your head around the fact that they would do this to a bunch of, you know, poor working class girls that they scooped off the street?
0: Yeah, it kind of recalls the idea that um, Nazism is colonialism turned in on mm. Europe itself. You know, yeah, people have referred yeah. to to that that way, the Holocaust and all that.
1: You know, I was just I was just thinking actually. Um, I think there's quite an interesting cultural thing uh, here, which is I think because I live in Britain, we're used to these scandals like erupting every like two or three years. Um so when I first heard about the, the truth thing I was like, Yeah, of course, that makes complete sense. So it's very interesting to kind of see people from other places like react to to this story. Um just because like I, I guess just growing up here you just expect the worst, you know, from
0: <laughs> Yeah, you guys kinda have a reputation over there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that this is the other thing as well, is like this is the only other show where I'm going to discuss this because being British and Northern, you really don't want to get a reputation as the pedo whisperer. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was
0: sort of, th- cause you mentioned that about like the, the laws in, in your country about that kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, I'll sort of like, I'm not going to name any names in, until he says it. Cause I don't want to uh, make things they, problematic for you. They're completely insane,
1: man. Um, I, yeah, not to like derail too much, but, um, our libel laws are so bad. Like there's, um, there was somebody on Twitter, like a, a proper lobby account, um, maybe six hundred followers. They retweeted an article that was critical of um, a celebrity we have called Rachel Riley, who has been properly like anti corbin oh, sort of. She's the
0: now. she hosts that thing with Jimmy Carr. I've yeah, seen, the ca- I've seen countdown. It. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, she she sued this person on Twitter, um, and they were looking at something like fifty grand in libel damages just because they they retweeted um an article that was critical of her. They had wow. said nothing themselves. Like uh, <laughs> I think in the end she dropped the suit because like her publicist was like, this makes you look, you know, absolutely terrible. Um Yeah. But yeah. That I d I didn't even know you can get in
2: trouble for a retweet I don't know. <laughs> <You> <laughs> yeah. think yeah, the person so that wrote fun. the article <laughs> would be the
1: I think basically the the retweeter was classed as um making the statement by endorsing the statement almost it was a very strange argument that the judge agreed with um but yeah uh in the end she dropped the suit though. so i suppose you know every cloud and everything <laughs> yeah mm-hmm.
0: well may- got her point across i suppose all right so let's just sum up here i think i think we're coming to the end of this uh episode it's kind of like a preliminary laying the groundwork uh for what's to come um we didn't even really touch on dutro yet But to summarize, we have the state of Belgium, a extremely weak, weak state, uh, very fragmented politically and dominated by various cliques that kind of vie for power and don't really have a real sense of loyalty to a central state and uh, instead sort of uh, operate on a basis of like patronage and favors and stuff like that, that fosters a, a deep corruption and, um, Inability to really like do anything at the state level. Instead, it's sort of dependent on the, the various uh, power brokers that head these different cliques and, and whatnot. Um, so at the end of World War Two, with the defeat of the Nazis and the various fascist powers, the people that were kind of more influential and powerful uh, backers of these kinds of uh, groups and these movements, they don't disappear you know, uh, they they hang around and they are still just as useful as they and uh, potent as they were. Well, maybe not quite as useful and potent, but they still have some measure of power and influence in in the world and in Europe in particular. And uh, they start to reorganize, reassess the terms, you know, in a, in a post-war kind of context. And uh, they start to form what I kind of think of as these group DMs uh, that they have, they're sort of these little. Groups um, where they make agreements with one another, they sort of determine the fate of nations and trade and and whatnot, like rather important decisions uh, that are made uh, in private kind of uh, small groups uh, between themselves and not really with any kind of democratic input whatsoever. Um, we'll get into the specifics of all these groups as they're relevant, uh, in a future episode, probably next episode or the one after. Um, but, uh, that kind of lays the groundwork for the retreat of Belgium from the Congo, right? So, so through the fifties, uh, the, the, uh, kind of Belgian control over the Congo is contested somewhat and they start to try to keep control of, in particular, the, the resource-rich uh, province of Katanga uh, through the use of mercenaries. Um, it's, it's sort of an interesting parallel to the stay-behinds that we spoke about earlier and that will come into play uh, later on in Belgian history. Um, not in any direct sense that I'm aware of, but they just mirror one another in, the, in the, their organization. And the uh, sort of like the worldview that these groups had. So these mercenaries are very, uh, you know, deep into the kind of manifest destiny sort of attitude about things and the um, bringing civilization to the dark continent. That kind of, you know, standard tropes of, you know, white supremacist tropes and all that kind of stuff Uh, that will sort of, uh, you know, that has a natural kinship to the kind of ultra right wing stuff that we see. Uh, at play with the various stay-behinds that will uh, be an important part of the Dutroux story uh, going forward. So, um, you know, you mentioned the the Ballet Roses scandal in France. Um, that was in 1959. Um, in 1960, there's the Congo crisis, which leads to the retreat of Belgium from the Congo. And, uh, uh, you, you know, it doesn't, doesn't leave things in a, in a good state, right? Uh, Patrice Lumumba, who was the president of the Congo at the time, he's he's the first president of, uh, of independent Congo is assassinated. And there's, it leads to like a, a civil war that's pretty ugly between, um, various competing, like, uh, rival states in, inside of Congo itself for, for control of the country. Uh, but Belgium basically, uh, gets out of there, We'll we'll leave off there for now, and we'll pick pick up with that next time. I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope you guys found that interesting. We will um, we'll get into the real grizzly stuff next episode. So this one was a little bit of a kind of a history lesson and laying the groundwork kind of kind of a thing. Uh, next episode will be a doozy where we get into some real grim stuff. So uh, hope you're excited for that. I know I am and uh yeah thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time
2: yeah thanks for coming on matt it was nice to have you on and uh yeah thanks for listening guys and we'll talk to you next time oh yeah okay well i can't say the exact same thing but like uh, <laughs> yeah anyways thanks guys
1: yeah cheers guys thanks for having me on it has been great